It started with Mr. Natural. That was the transition album, Mr. Yeah. Natural. Mr. Natural album took what, us in the main course. What did, yeah. he, he produced Mr. Natural as well with us, and it was a team effort. But what he did was, he was actually drawing out what we loved the most. And as a musician, he taught me things on the bass I didn't even know I could play. How yeah. did he do that? Well, he brought it out of me. He said, you know, we'd be yeah. funk it up a bit more and he things like that. He instills confidence in the musician. And I was playing yeah. things. Yeah, and Alan, Kendall, our yeah. lead guitarist and keyboard players, everybody, he brought out the best in them. Nice. Mr. Natural itself wasn't the, the album to showcase all of that, but what it was, it was a transition album. It was an album where we mm. sat down and said, this is not really the entire stuff that you should be doing, but I've seen what you want to do, and when you mm. do make that album, it's got to be that way. It can't be like this. That direction, yeah. Mm. Hi everybody and welcome back to Words the Bee Gees podcast. I'm Stuart and I'm Cristiano and here we are again for the start of season three. I can't believe it that all two of you are still with us. (laughs) Thanks for sticking around. Yeah no seriously we'd like to thank everybody. Um, We've had some over the last two years we've had some fantastic emails. Yeah. I've got to thank Chris because he does all the all the responding and everything. I'm not that technical so I tend to do quite a bit of research and Christiane is really good at doing all the responses, so thank you. It's a pleasure every time we receive an email, a comment on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. You always form to me, and I can't wait because I always, I'm always texting Crystal saying, "Have you had, have you heard anything?" Because, and it, more than likely, you always send me bits of information, don't you? I'm grateful every time anyone says they enjoy the podcast, and I still can't believe it when people say that. They look forward to new episodes, and but we certainly enjoy recording, don't we? We have a good laugh, don't we? I mean. Behind the scenes, it's it's a little bit different to what you probably actually hear all the time. Yeah, and, and what might end up as an hour and a half recording started life as four hours of us ambling through and ums and ahs and <laughs> laughing. And... Yeah, <laughs> and plenty of cups of coffee. <laughs> so before we took our journey through the Australian material, we got up to 1973 with A Kick in the Head is Worth Eight in the Pants. And for the opening of season three for this episode... We're going to carry on and we're going to go into 1974 with Mr. Natural. The reason why we decided to stop at a kick in the head and then go back to the Australian material is because Mr. Natural, I feel, is the beginning of what becomes the most successful period in the Bee Gees' lives. The transition, isn't it? Yeah. I think that's really due to Arif Mardin. I personally think this is one of the most important albums in their career. This has been an album since we first started doing this podcast it was always one that I was I was so excited to get around to this it's always on constant repeat for me writing the notes for this album came so easy I, I, I had all of these thoughts that I've been building up in my mind over the past five years just come natural <laughs> when did you first hear Mr Natural probably be about oh crumbs 84 85 around then I was intrigued funny enough by the album cover and I'd Bought main course. It would be this because I brought Living Eyes, and then I, I and then I, I sort of went and brought main course. I just was intrigued. I, I hadn't heard any apart from the song Mister Natural, which I'd heard as I mentioned before on that um, interview from seventy eight. I liked it straight away. Yeah, but unfortunately, my vinyl copies is poor quality. It's really bad. It feels thin. I did read later on that that. Um, RSO were known for poor quality vinyl. Funny enough, I put it on prior to this podcast. And I think I got through about four or five tracks and I gave up. There was more pops you could hear than actual the melody of the records. It was... 
more crackle, less pop, I think. Released in June 1974, so that's, what, 17 months after Life in a Tin Can. But the departure in terms of sound and production and arrangements from Life in a Tin Can, they are just worlds apart from each other. That's what I was going to say. They're just, you can't compare the two, can you? No. We spoke for two hours on Life in a Tin Can, and I really grew to love that album through doing the podcast. But the, the sound production of, of it, naturally, it's an acoustic album, and we spoke about how it was going for the American sound. and Laid back as well. But then you go to Mr. Natural, and I'll go on to talk about Arif Mardin and his work, but immediately from the opening chimes of Charade, we're getting soft keyboards, we're getting luscious strings. It's just already such a departure from the sounds that they've had before. I'm sort of looking at it and thinking, wow, what people at the time, what must they have thought? They didn't because they didn't buy it. Did they? <laughs> <laughs> you know, Sadly it, not. It, it's a shame, isn't it? Yeah. I've often thought about that and you're thinking, well, whether the Bee Gees were, especially around Europe and in the US, was, was it the least selling album? They were rock bottom. And I think at the time they were in the UK touring a Batley's or something like that, which was a, more of a cabaret circuit mm. and stuff yeah we'll get on to that whereas in australia they were they were playing to as big audiences as they were in in 67 68 so there's so the world's apart what was what was going on and and this album just just went under the radar completely and going back to what you said about the sound quality and and the quality of the vinyl for mr natural in the 70s or in 1974 when this came out with your hi-fi setup that you had with vinyls, on a vinyl, would it just be coming out of speakers? Or One did... speaker, mono. At what point did you have headphones that you could listen to? I had a, a just a, at the time, it was just a, a record player with, you could put like six singles on and then it, a single would drop and then you put the next one on. So it, it was literally, you lift the lid up and it was just coming out of one speaker and you had speeds, you had, you had on mine I had a 16 a 33, a 45, and a 78. So you had these four different speeds that you could use. I think, I don't ever recall seeing a 16. I I assume they were probably used either, I don't know whether it be for classical, where obviously the, the music was longer, or at the time you could buy probably records with stories on them and stuff. And then obviously 78s being 78s, and then obviously 78s turned into 45s, and then you got, obviously got your 33 and a third. I didn't hear anything in stereo, so I think my friend's parents had one of the like a it was like a gramophone thing where it, we, it, you had two speakers then and it was like a like a sideboard yeah probably around about seven eight foot long we had the record player in them in there then you had like two like sliding doors that you pulled back that revealed the speakers so it wasn't until then i probably heard a stereo the reason why i ask is because mr natural as an album works so well on headphones to have heard it at the time on a tinny record player through a mono speaker would not do justice at all to the absolute quality of production that this album has. Mm. I consume most of my music via headphones, earphones, and this album is always such a, a treat to the senses. You know, I don't think I've heard it on earphones. There's some songs that I'm going to point out where you have to do it because the way that Mardin has spatially placed 
the keyboards and and the, the soft sonic sounds. It's such a treat to the senses. It's a really good experience listening to this on headphones. I had some earphones, oh, probably late 70s, and you, you had these great big earmuffs on each side of you, and you had this windy cable that you had to plug into the thingamabob. There obviously was no Wi-Fi then or wireless thing, so... You, if you, you put your earphones on, you get up to move and it'll pop out again. So, <laughs> so oh, where's the sound gone? You have to go and plug it back in again. But obviously I was living at home then, so you, you, you couldn't have it on loud. But that's the only way you could hear your music loud was putting the earphones on. So, but no, I don't think I've ever heard this. And that one, I'll have to give it a try then. Yeah, d- definitely. Now that we're into the third season of the podcast, I thought it would be quite fun to add in a new segment to every episode. Mr. Natural was released around June 1974 in the UK. And so I've taken the top 10 singles in the UK from June 1974. So I'm going to count down from number 10. I'm going to give you the artist if you can give me the single. Yeah, go on then. Yeah. Uh, Number 10, Arrows. Oh, uh, no, I don't know. A Touch Too Much. Drifters at number nine. Backseat of the movies. Close. Sitting in the back street. Close. Uh, kissing in the background. Yep, correct. At number eight, Cockney Rebel. Come up, make me smile. Nope. Um, Judy Teen. That's it. Yep. Number seven, Sparks. Is Tannet big enough for the both of us? Yep. Number six, Rubettes. Jukebox Jive or nope. Sugar Baby Love? Yeah, Sugar yep. Baby Love. At number five, Ardeen Taylor. There's a ghost in my yep. house. Yeah. At number four, Charles Aznavour. She. Yep. At number three, Shawadi Wadi. Shawadi Wadi. Wadi 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 Wadi. Uh, no, I don't know. Hey, rock and roll. Oh, right. I would have known that. At number two, I, I could skim over this, but number two is Gary Glitter. Oh. Do you want to be in my gang? No. Don't know. Always yours. Guess what number one might be? Artists. Number one... What, male, female? Or male. David Essex? Something no. like that? 19th June 74. Clue? If I said that their first name began with the letter R? Roger Stewart? No, but you got the initials correct. <laughs> uh, not Rolling Stone then. So I say the artist is Ray Stevens. Streak? Correct. Yeah, well, that's a bit of a one-off hit that was because I think around seventy-four it was it was uh, streaking was a bit of a phenomenon I think where people took their clothes off and ran oh, right. across football pitches <laughs> or crikey or yeah weird things <laughs> favorite song from those top ten I did buy Rubette's jukebox jive which was after that one so I remember buying that one sugar baby love I'm, th- I'm trying to think what I was thinking in seventy-four so. And what I was taping, so... Shall I drop down to number 20 and work my way up to 11? Just go through a few then, just see if we've got... Uh... Well, at number 20 is Cliff Richard. No, I don't know. You keep me hanging on. Number 19 is the Isley Brothers. No, I don't know. Summer Breeze. No. Number 18 is Elton John. No. Don't let the sun go down on me. All oh, right, yeah. Number 17 is Pearls. Guilty. Yep, but not that guilty. <laughs> At number 16 is Mouth and McNeil. No, I don't know. I See a Star. 15, Paper Lace. Billy Don't Be a Hero. Nope. The Night Chicago Died. Yep. Number 14, Leo Sayer. I Won't Let the Show Go On. Nope. No. One Man Band. Oh. Number 13 is Scaffold. Uh, Liverpool Lou. Yep. 
And at number 12, Lobo. No. I'd Love You to Want Me. Uh, at number 11 is Alan Price. No, I don't know. Jarrow song. Oh, okay. Quite eclectic, would you say? Yes, oh yeah, but that's how it was in the 70s. Well, particularly, I would say up to around about 77 it was. So I were listening to that, I wouldn't say any of that stuff resembles anything from Mr Natural. Even though I'm seeing some artists in this list who, during my research, I have seen comparisons to with songs on Mr Natural. Yeah, but then I suppose the song Mr Natural could have squeezed in there somewhere. If you listen to that top 20, you could, you could see that it should be in there. And we talk about Arif Mardin with his relation to gospel music and R&B and that influence on Mr Natural. In those 20 songs that we went through, is there anything there that feeds mm. into that gospel R&B? From what you said of that top 20 of 74, it seems to me geared to more UK market and European market rather than the US market. Arif mainly producing in, the, in America... It fitted more with the sound that was... If you probably listen to the top 20 that was in America to hear, it's, there's quite a lot of difference. Things like the Icy Brothers that you mentioned, I could see that in the American charts. I think actually probably the street did, did get charted in America because Ray Stevens is American. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, interesting. But you still got, you see, your Rubets and one or two others, Arrows that probably at the tail end of Glam, Shwaddy Waddy. Going back to the 1950s, yeah. Yeah. as we said with Kick in the Head. Yeah. I'll give some context towards the origins of this album. I found a quotation from Morris in the Ultimate Biography dating around or late 73. It was after a kick in the head. And he says, we're going to attempt a concept album, referring to Mr. Natural, that's a major departure from our usual Bee Gees trademarks. And if that doesn't work, we'll try something else. So after the abandonment of a kick in the head... Jerry Rexler and Ahmet Ertegun at Atlantic Records suggested to Stigwood that he should set the Bee Gees up with Arif Mardin to get just a different sound mm. and to expand their repertoire and try out different genres. And Stigwood said, I just felt that Arif Mardin was a terrific producer. I knew him because of our Atlantic connection. I asked him if he would come in and start recording the Bee Gees, and he did. So I'd like to give some background information on Arif Mardin. I'll go through some of his previous work, and I've been dipping in and out of his albums from around 72, 73 to give myself a little bit of context as to the types of sounds that he was producing prior to Mr. Natural. I listened to his work that he did for Aretha Franklin, and a notable example is his work on her 1972 album called Young, Gifted and Black. And I think that the sounds of Mr. Natural and Main Course can be heard throughout this album. A particular example, which I'll play, is a song from the album called All the King's Horses. And I think that that song just demonstrates the softer keyboard arrangements and also the strong gospel crashes that we hear throughout Mr. Natural on songs like Give a Hand, Take a Hand. It's not the Bee Gees song from 66 from the previous episode then. All the King's Horses. Yeah. yeah, That's what I thought actually when I first saw the title. I had to double check that she wasn't covering it. No, it was a, it was a Franklin composition. Happiness is 
Another artist who Mardin worked with was Roberta Flack and Donny Hathaway. Where is the love? Is that, was that there? Yeah, that's yeah, it. That's it, the yeah. one. I was listening to that and again we're getting that smooth string mm. sound and the electric keyboards which are again precursing the sounds that Mardin would draw from the Bee Gees and also very reminiscent. I was listening to Where Is The Love and it reminded me a lot of Andy Gibb's song Why which wasn't that wasn't relating back to Arif Mardin but listening to that song I thought well if Barry's involved with that and the connection Going back to Mr. Natural, I can definitely see how Mardin influenced Barry and how Barry then went on to influence Andy. Andy yeah. You and I are both big fans of Hall and Oates. Mardin worked on Whole Oates and Abandoned Luncheonette. In fact, I'll come to that later because I've, I've got a few notes regarding that and, and a couple of songs on here. Yeah, well, I, I was revisiting those two albums because I've not heard them in a few years. The sound of Mardin is kind of less evident on those two albums because they're a bit more acoustic-y. Yeah, there's one or two songs, I think, from the second album that I... Well, I thought of Georgie from Whole Oats. Yeah. I thought I could start to hear that sort of Mr. Natural sound. And certainly then going on to Abandoned Luncheonette, you get songs like She's Gone. Yeah. Oh, definitely She's Gone and the song Abandoned Luncheonette as well. Yes, yeah. Reminds me of the title track, Mr. Natural. And then I looked at Mardin's later credits, so I'll just list some of the artists that he would later go on to work with. And while I'm mentioning these artists, you'll be able to pick out all of the artists who the Bee Gees would later work with. So we've got Phil Collins, Barbara Streisand, Willie Nelson, Ringo Starr, Leo Sayer, which was on the same album called World Radio, where the Bee Gees contributed Heart Stop Beating in Time. one of my favourites. Chaka Khan. Chaka Chaka. (laughs) Mose Allison. Eddie Harris, Average White Band, Diana Ross, Dionne Warwick, and then the Bee Gees on ESP and Still Waters. Do you have any thoughts on Mardin's work as an arranger, any of his previous works? I, I knew obviously he did the Hall and Oates stuff. I didn't realise he did all those until he did the research. I wouldn't, I wouldn't have guessed he'd, he'd done any of them. I knew he was obviously a well-known producer and, and, and stuff. And, and I... I I always associated more with like what they call is it the Philly sound or blue-eyed soul that sort of stuff. Yeah. In terms of the rest of the personnel on Mr. Natural, we have Alan Kendall on guitar. On drums we have Dennis Bryan. He was a former member and founder of the band Amen Corner 
and after they disbanded, he joined the Bee Gees, and he remained with them until 1979, and it was Brian who recommended Blue Weaver, and Blue Weaver was also a member of Eamon Corner. So that's how that connection started. On piano and keyboards, we have Jeff Wesley, and Wesley went on to have a really prolific career as a composer and arranger. He worked with the Everly Brothers, the Carpenters, Peter Gabriel, Vangelis, Phil Collins, Henry Mancini, and Hans Zimmer, to name but a few. He would continue to work with the Bee Gees through until 1977. And then engineers, we have Damon Lyonshaw, Andy Knight, Gene Poole, and Alan Lucas. So with recording for Mr. Natural, the earliest known recording day I could find was the 14th of November 1973, and it's on this day that they recorded Heavy Breathing, and possibly I Can't Let You Go, as that's undated, and recording took place at IBC in London. IBC Studios isn't the only place where they recorded Mr. Natural. I think some of it was even recorded in America, because it, it carried on into 74. Now, looking at Joseph Brennan's Gibb songs, did you notice something about 1974? Yes. Would you believe it, Chris? In 1974, he has listed literally four songs. And you'll probably find the next few years, the songwriting, the quality increases, but the quantity decreases. The quantity, you might think, decreases, but again, the amount that they're giving away increases. Yeah. In the early 70s, they didn't really give much away to other artists. But you'll find this period now, you'll come to like albums where, where people are not getting new songs from Barry as such. They're, they're doing songs that are on the album that the Bee Gees didn't release as singles. But yeah, so literally only, only the four songs. And talking about diminishing contributions, we are really seeing the lack of creative input from Morris. Yeah. I think he had issues at the time, didn't he? But yeah. it is what it is, isn't it? So We'll pick up on his bass work, which is fantastic as ever, but we're not getting lead vocals. I'm struggling again to hear him even on harmonies, and this is something that will carry on. As we've said before, it's not really going to be through until 1981 that we hear him again taking the lead. And there's songs here that I'm going to point out where I think that Morris could have taken the lead and really could have improved some of these songs. Mm. What do you make of the album artwork? Well, I I find this a bit strange, actually, because... Prior to this, there was three albums released, or Gatefold, because I think Trafalgar was a Gatefold, wasn't it? Then you got To Whom It May Concern and Tin Can. And then here we come here with, with just a single sleeve. There's no lyrics. Well, definitely in my vinyl, there's no lyrics. And there's not even a picture of them. Is that a way to promote a group that, that's seemingly on the way down, not up? It's always difficult because for me, album covers become so intrinsically linked to the music that whenever I play Mr. Natural, in my head, it's a weird thing to say, but when I I think of an album cover, then when I'm listening to music, in my mind's eye, I can kind of picture, if not the album cover, at least the colour scheme of the album cover. So when I'm listening to Mr. Natural, I'm in my head, I'm picturing neon blues and neon Mm. pinks, like the Bee Gees Mr. Natural sign on typography sign on the album cover. I had a look into where it was taken and the photo was taken at Corner Bistro, which I believe is still up and running. This is on 334th West 4th Street, Greenwich Village in New York City. Okay, yeah. The cover shows, I'm presuming that is supposed to be Mr. Natural sat at the bar looking sort of daydreamingly out of the window whilst the busy hubbub of life goes on behind him. 
Yeah, I, I do think that the cover really suits the album. Well, well. Not, yeah, if you look back in hindsight, you can think, well, it is, it is, it's not too bad a cover. Yeah, and it depicts that American sound, which I think is all over this album. And I think that that neon glow of the Bee Gees sign fits the kind of soft synthesizer string arrangements that are all over the album. I do think that really, as you said, it, sh- it should have at least featured the Bee Gees somewhere on the cover. Well, even if the, on the back of it, you could have had the back of them sitting at the bar or something. They don't have to have the faces. They could be the back of them sitting at the bar being served like, you know, here's the front here and here's the, back, here's the Bee Gees at the back or something. And I think, isn't this, isn't this the first time that we get the lead single the same name as the album? I'm trying to quickly rack through my brains, and I think you are right. Unless, was Idea the first, was that a single from Idea? No. Spirits Haven't Flown, what, what, I think was a single, but not the lead-off single, was it? Because that was... Uh, Living Eyes, no. Your Living Eyes was a single, but not again, not the lead-off Not one. the lead-off. Was one the first? Not here in the UK, it wasn't, no. Was it Ordinary Lives? Yeah. This is where I came in would have been the first single. Yeah, that's, 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 that's the last one. So with that then, shall we put the record on the record player, drop the needle on side one, track one, charade. released as the third single from Mr Natural. It was released in August and it was backed with Heavy Breathing. Well, what I've got to say is, wow, what an opener. I'm going to start off with with Big Fat Ten. It gives me goosebumps every time I hear it. I think it it's just fantastic. It's got everything I love about the Bee Gees. Well, I, I can't really put into words what I think of this one. It's romantic, it's seductive, it's all them sort of words, isn't it? I'll start with, instead of giving my thoughts, I'll start with a review from Cashbox on this one. The Bee Gees come across with their usual lush harmonies and luxurious instrumentation. It is a love song with the boys filling the song and our hearts at the same time with a timeless sense of idyllic love that we can all relate to. A very pretty song, which I agree with. I've picked out quite a few Cashbox reviews regarding Mr. Natural and whoever's writing for Cashbox has the same mindset as you and I because they're so positive. I'm sure you're more familiar than me, but when I was looking through Cashbox after the contents page, there'd then be a list of the top 50 singles and the top 50 albums. Were the Bee Gees anywhere to be seen? No, no, not at all. And yeah, I just follow up with what you said completely. This is a beautiful, luscious and sensual opener to the album. And 
from the opening soft tinkling keys of Wessler's Fender Rhodes right through to then the luscious strings that come in. And then I think that's complimented. Is it Phil Bodner that does the clarinet? Yes. And I think the clarinet coupled with Mardin's arrangement. Well, it's a masterstroke, isn't it? That clarinet, I think because clarinets in general always make me think of sort of 30s, 40s music. It's a change to hear that. And then obviously we'll get later on, especially in the 80s, the old saxophone come out. Yeah. To hear the clarinet as opposed to the saxophone is just really, really good bit of producing and, and stuff. I think that sonically this is totally new ground for the Bee Gees. And I would argue that this is the most different that the Bee Gees have sounded since Bee Gees first in 1967. Again, this goes back to what I was saying before about wearing headphones. If you put them on, the way that the keyboards are mixed, the way that they're reverberating from left to right, whereas the drums and the strings are always kept central. And I think that's really a great way of kind of anchoring the rhythm section of the song in the centre Whereas you've got all of this sort of sensuality happening around with with the with the music and and the arrangements, yeah, this this is such a fantastic opener. When I used to do my compilations, this was always the first one I'd put on. Yeah. You know, not the first track, but the first song I'd write, think, oh, I'm going, to, I'm going to include this. This song just deserves to be heard by all the people that buy Best of the Bee Gees, all the compilations, because it's like a, I always put this as like a precursor to How Deep Is Your Love, How Deep Is Your Love Leads Into Too Much Heaven. Yeah. So I've got these three songs that I just think are, are just like the, the top of the pile. But I don't know if you've noticed the same thing. I've looked online on the Steve Hoffman forums. People don't like this song. I don't know why. I thought that. And yet I looked on YouTube and things like that. And nearly everybody said, this is, oh, no, sorry, I do apologise. On Amazon. Yeah. And this nearly always comes up as everybody's favourite. Yeah. People get influenced by what sometimes what they're reading as opposed to, um, to this. But they must have different ears to me because it's, it's just wonderful. Do you have chart information for this one? It did get to number 10 in Chile. Didn't chart in the UK or US. I will say that the one slight drawback about this song is that I think it's the perfect opener to an album. But it does, I think for for someone who's listening to the Bee Gees albums in order, going up until this point, it does carry on in a very, very long trend of Bee Gees albums opening with a ballad. And I think that's kind of a mistake. If they're going, they're going for a new sound. They've achieved that new sound, but still, to the listeners who are probably a little bit maybe you a little swapped over and started with dogs, then just something a bit more up tempo. I think that the Bee Gees might have been getting a bit of stick in the early seventies for constant ballads, which is kind of what they were being known for, and might have been considered as a leftover of the nineteen sixties. And running through all of their albums, going from sort of the early seventies, you've got. Trafalgar opens with How Can You Mend a Broken Heart. Then you've got Run To Me on the next album. Elisa on A Kick in the Head, even though that wasn't released. Odessa starts with the the orchestral suite Odessa. There's nothing really up-tempo. Even Saw A New Morning is Mm. sort of... It's neither a ballad nor an up-tempo piece. You can see then with Main Course why it was such a good move to open with Nights on Broadway as opposed to opening with, say, Fanny Be Tender. Yeah. I 
surprised with RSO that I think, if I remember rightly, on Night Fever, they put the live version of Down the Road as the B-side. So I'm surprised after the success that they had with Saturday Night Fever, they didn't dip into this album. Yeah. You get people like David Bowie, whose album Hunky Dory was a complete failure in 71. And then after the success of 72's um, Ziggy Stardust, they go and release Life on Mars in 73, two-year-old song. And in the, I don't know where the rest of the world, but in the UK, it was, it was a top 10 record and it, it's now known as sort of a Bowie classic. And I just think that some, one or two of these songs could quite easily have been re-released in the wake of Saturday Night Fever. Definitely, yeah. Unless probably because it was too similar to Too Much Heaven and they felt probably, no, we don't want this one releasing. But there, there's one or two other songs that could, even the song Mr Natural. I don't know. But, but certainly at least a few of these songs deserve a listening audience, especially after the success of Saturday Night Fever. We'll get on to our thoughts on Main Course in the next episode. But... Really, I think if it wasn't for Jive Talking, if that if you took that off the album and swapped it with something else that wasn't released as a single and Jive Talking didn't become the massive phenomenon that it became, I think Main Course would have fallen the same way as Mr. Natural. It's only really the falsetto that sets it apart. Yeah. Otherwise, they're, they're very, very similar in terms oh, of do. types of music. I think this, this one's more eclectic, I think, don't you? But I wouldn't say that there's a lot of better songs on Main Course than this. Sherard, Barry's voice, he's in full breathy style on this one. And and throughout the whole album, Mardin, I think, uses Barry's breathy vocal like a reed instrument as though it was part of an orchestra. And that's why when Phil Bodner comes in with a clarinet solo, it's such a perfect sonic match to Barry's vocals. They Because the way that they're, you know, Barry's vocal is kind of like a woodwind instrument. So then the clarinet works so well with that. But yeah, this charade is is a wonderful opener. Is it a ten for me? I've I've put down here as a nine. Yeah, well, it's I'll one of those for a ten. I I don't think it's got quite the commercial appeal as as How Deep Is Your Love, but it it's as good a song as that to me. Yeah, I just think that Stigwood, in comparison to what he thought about life in a tin can and kick in the head, must have been so excited by the sounds of Mister Natural. And I tell you what, I forgot to say that I take another highlight of this song is. Doesn't Robin come in with his vocal the, uh, after every chorus? Yeah. This is what I say about the two brothers. They're just, it's just superb how they both work together. So th- this song sounds like a joint composition. These songs, even if you took Mardin out of the equation, the style of writing is so different to Tin Can. Had, did they already have these songs written before they met Arif Mardin? Or did they work with him, test a few things, and then write these songs to suit his sound, if you get what I mean? If you look on Joseph Brennan's notes for 75 for Main Course, it said the first songs they did on that session were the one that's just been... Love Save the World. Was, and your, uh, which we've heard, another song called You're So Vain or something, which they abandoned because it was in the old BG style. Yeah. So it, it's in their DNA to, to write that sort of stuff. So I'm... Um, Going back to your question, I think it, it must be Arif that said, no, no, I want you to write something 
I think with it with a more or, or he, he would get the get the session players to play music with a more funky beat or whatever. And this is the sort of rhythm we want you to write the song in. Going back to what Morris said earlier about them trying a concept album. When we spoke about Life in a Tin Can, we discussed the concept album. With Mr. Natural, no. there's no concept album here. There's a couple of songs that I think link together really well. But on side one, we do get the first four songs that they do segue into each other really well. Looking at Joseph Brennan's notes, I could see that on the 23rd of December, 1973, the opening three tracks were cross-faded and they even possibly recorded a, a new link track to go between Throw a Penny and Down the Road. But the transitions on, on these songs work so well. It's part of the, the magic of the album. And the transition going from Charade into Throw a Penny is no exception to that. But then it's weird, isn't it? Because on the Towers of Brother Gibb, they swap them around. Yeah, and that, that does not work no, at it all. Doesn't, no, it doesn't. But it was good that they put Charade on, on the album. As you said, because people need to hear it. So... I'm hoping that with people who brought Tales of the Brothers Gibb, that they would have had, a, if they've not heard Charade before or not heard Mr. Natural, then mm. they got a good chance to. But yeah, going back to what you said, it, it is the sequencing on this is really good. So with that then, shall we go on to track number two and throw a penny? say it with every song on this album but again great arrangements i particularly love the soft kick drum which sort of sounds like a heartbeat going throughout the song and then the keyboard padding which sort of swells around with the arpeggiated chords and it just beautifully accompanies barry's vocals again he's got that breathy vocal style very romantic very gentle and i love the way that this this whole song sort of keeps changing and shifting moods yeah, this is this is another real highlight on the album. Yeah, it, just a slight dip from the last song, but it don't matter what you put next, it'd be a slight dip for me anyway. But no, I, I think this is still a good, solid album track, and it does really blend with Charade, but it picks the tempo up slightly. I probably find this one a little strange. It was, it was the second choice as a single. Me too. I mean, you say about the different things, but... I'm not sure whether I, I like that, the bit that Robin sings in the middle. You're not sure? No. Because I, I, I right, I've got to say this right now, that, that is my favourite moment on the album. And it is, if I was to compile a top 10 list of favourite Bee Gees moments in songs, that would be up there near the top. 
the way that Robin's vocals are drenched in reverb, sounding as though he's singing through some sort of transistor radio and then the swelling keyboards all around him. This is just, yeah, one of my favourite Bee Gees moments. At around 2 minutes 30, on the line and bring him close. The way that Barry's voice then sort of stacks back into the mix. I just This is like nothing we've ever heard before. I, I absolutely love that bit. It, it, you said with Sherrod that it gives you goosebumps. Yeah. For me, it's this moment on Throw a Penny that whenever I'm listening to the album and as I said on headphones, it just, it makes me stop in my tracks and I'm, wow. then starts to build and build and then i think there's another melody that comes in the throw a penny bit yes. I, I think that's another song that is what i said before on the 23rd of december when they they start fading the songs together there was a rumor of a link track a new track being added between throw a penny and down the road and i think that's what you're hearing the throw a penny bit throw a yeah. Penny. yeah 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 I think there's too many changes for it to have been a, a, I know nothing, the singles weren't hitting the charts anyway, but I just think that the bit that you like, I think doesn't work as a single because it just okay. changes it. I mean, the Bee Gees, if you think, you think about the follow-up album, they did the similar trick as well with Nights on Broadway, where he goes, I will wait, where they got the song. And I think it was, I think I, I think it was covered by Candy Statton, I'm not sure, something like that. And, and they took the bridge off it. But I think I think if you're picking a single, I wouldn't have I would I wouldn't have gone with this one. Well, I would have gone with "Heavy Breathing," the B-side to "Charade" as a single. Yeah. Now on "Life in a Tin Can" and "Kick in the Head," we praised Robin's vocals, and we both said that he was the standout vocalist on those albums. But "Mr. Natural" for me, as an album, Barry takes the limelight. That's what I I, I thought on this one. He's he's got the bull by the horns and said right. This is what I want. And this is proven at 43 seconds into Throw a Penny when he comes in with a line, but it's at times like this. That sudden contrast from his breathy head voice to the full-on chest voice makes it even more impactful just how good of a vocalist Mm. he is. He is on absolute top form. Again, that's why I was slightly reserved on giving Sherrod a 10 because I might even say that I possibly slightly prefer Throw a Penny. So I've given Throw a Penny a 10. Okay, well I've I've gone with a eight on this one. In the 20th of July issue of Cashbox, they reviewed Throw a Penny, and they said, These established hitmakers will add this one to that string of successes. Another ballad, sensitively delivered with a great lead vocals and the group's patented harmonies. This one might get them back on the hit track again. Very pretty song that deserves to be heard. Interesting that they describe it as a ballad. 
Well, I haven't heard the single, so I'm, wonder, I'm wondering whether what, did they edit out the fast bit at the end? And looking at uh, the booklet from Tao's brother Gib, I mean, we're talking this. This was released in 1990, so you're getting the, the Bee Gees got little comments. I assume probably from about 89, something like that. I still get the feeling that it was. I mean, for throw a penny, it, the only comment that Barry said is, "Where are we going?" What's that supposed to mean? And then Morris for Sherrod has got the song for making love. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, obviously, it didn't resonate with, with Barry, did it? Well, in the same way that Throw a Penny links so smoothly into Down the Road, should we plough on through into track three? Yeah. question to you and <laughs> going by things that we've said in previous podcasts whether you'll know the answer but what are the lyrics about i i didn't know but then somebody's put here i read it's about a male hustler being rejuvenated to the highest degree ain't no words describing what this feeling's done to me but i don't care show my body anywhere go down to the courthouse being on display ain't no words describing but it's been a perfect day take it nice and easy mama chicken on the run the lyrics are so weird and maybe it is about a male hustler but again it's the melody that's so infectious that i don't really care what the lyrics are i'm still going to sing along regarding the lyrics as well it you said that line go down to the courthouse i've been on display i mean it's got nothing to do because barry went to a juvenile court didn't he oh did he yeah when he's around 11 hence why the family moved to australia then he had to go back to court years later when when he chased a stalker with a gun. So I uh, well, don't think it's nothing to do with that at all then. But I do think that the lyric, being rejuvenated to the highest degree, ain't no words describing what this feeling's done to me, pretty much summarises this album. The Bee Gees in this new sound that they've discovered with Mardin, they have been rejuvenated and they're excited and they're energised and I can hear that on the album. They don't sound tired, they don't sound, you know, lacklustre. They're clearly inspired and enthused by the music and the sounds that they're producing mm. and that shows in the vocal performance, just in the songwriting that we're getting.
So before we carry on with the discussion, Chris, what are your scores on this one? I know that we don't do half scores, but I'm really torn between a seven and an eight. With Down the Road, it's not a song that I revisit in isolation, purely because I, I always think it's such an integral part in between both voices and Throw a Penny. I think it's got so much energy to it, and I really like the live version on here at last, but I'm going to go with a seven. Well, I'm going to stick with a seven. I I, I thought when you, we was listening to this, I might up to an eight, but I totally agree with what you're saying. It fits so well on the album. But if I was going to compile of songs of all BGs, where would this sit in? And I think it, it sits nicely with a seven. But I think it's exactly what you need. Track three yeah. is something like this with this much energy. Although we love Charade, you know, that's not the most energetic song that the BGs have written. But at my age, I don't need anything too energetic. <laughs> <laughs> Asper inhaler at the ready. <laughs> yeah, there's some for you asthmatics. Heavy breathing. <laughs> quite a rocking number and i don't think they touch this this sort of rocky stuff again do they for quite a while i can't think of any i was trying to think of albums and 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 stuff and there's nothing sort of like it on main course children of the world spirits living eyes what do you make of the live version that appears on here at last really good yeah i'd love to been in the audience i bet it was great Whilst I do think that some of the power of the studio arrangement is lost, I do really like the way that they they somehow make it even faster when yeah. they're doing it live. The vocal delivery from Barry, it's like he's trying to keep up with himself the whole time. But I think it's just great to hear a song from Mr. Natural performed live. And I'm so pleased that it found its way onto that live album. Clearly, I think it must have been this and Heavy Breathing must have been their two favourites from the album for them to have retained it in the live set. It's like their up-to-date version of A Road to Alaska. And I kind of feel like Road to Alaska was made redundant because of Down the Road. And then Down the Road and Heavy Breathing, I think, were both made redundant in the set list by the introduction of You Should Be Dancing and Tragedy, which kind of filled that same role and being the huge songs that those two were they kind of removed the need to have songs like Down the Road. Yeah. But it is interesting that on Mr. Natural, Down the Road then goes into the slower and gentler voices, whereas on Here at Last, again, we get Down the Road going into the slower, gentler ballad of words. So that contrast, is cl- I think, is always needed to go from something fast and loud to something a bit slower and makes, quieter. It makes each song stand out. Exactly, yeah. You get two the same and they, they blend. And I, I think two fast songs, sometimes you've got to be careful how, how they work together. Whereas it's easy, I think, to put like two ballads quite together. As we've said, having the fast and the slow next to each other just goes to show the Bee Gees' dynamic range. Sweet voices calling wild Echoing When my story's over 
we then go on to track four, Voices. And I feel like this is exactly what the album needed at this point. The acoustic guitar and the stripped back opening is a welcome break after the sort of the keyboard and string heavy opening three songs. Yeah, well, I think you're going back into classic Bee Gees territory with this one. I get the impression it starts off with a... It's going to be a standard Robin ballad. But then around 1 minute 30, I think when Barry comes in, the, the tempo sort of increases... And then you get you get the guitar back in. Do you have any thoughts on the guitar that comes in at one minute thirty? No, only that I know it's Alan Kendall. But I would think they just wanted to get away at the time from from a, a ballad with with big orchestra, and I think that's what Arif was was trying to get away from. This album, I think, is geared to be played live more than previous albums. It's the sound that they could produce more on stage than, than the other, even though because before they used to take a full orchestra with them. Well, I think with going with Arif, I think them days are gone. They've, they've, they've got to rethink, think their music, think what they're going to put on an album, and then also think how they're going to promote it and where they're going to tour with it. Whether I'm looking too much into it, but I think that's why you probably hear the guitar and stuff like that. Well, it's a completely different guitar sound to what Alan was providing on Wouldn't I Be Someone? But what I will say about this, the type of guitar sound that he produces here, so I'll go off on a bit of a tangent, but I, was, I would say that so far in the 1970s Bee Gees albums that we've discussed, there really hasn't been that much that I feel has dated the Bee Gees albums. You know, thinking back to Trafalgar or To Whom It May Concern, there's not really much there that I would say, oh yeah, that definitely makes it sound like a mm. 1971 album or a 1972 album. That's true, yeah. But I do think that this guitar sound in Voices is very 1974. When I first heard Mr. Natural, it was 2018, and it was the summer of 73. It was the summer of 2018. (laughs) And I was listening to this album, and I was also listening to John Lennon's Walls and Bridges, which is one of my favourite John Lennon albums. And the sound of this and Walls and Bridges were so similar, which Walls and Bridges was also 1974, and Walls and Bridges, despite me really liking that album, it does fall into that very canned 1970s, mid-1970s sound that I'm not so keen on. It. They're the ones with the vocals, I think, are sort of pushed back. You don't get the vocals with the music behind them sort of thing. You've got the voice as if it's part of the... It's hard to describe, but it's yeah. it, it, it's smooth. It's 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 that same sound that he produces with Harry Nilsson on Pussycats. It's it's not the sort of sound that I'm that keen on, despite me liking Walls and Bridges as an album. And I'm so glad that the Bee Gees never fell into that trap of that production style. It's why I'm so glad that they went with Arif Mardin and got the sounds that they did. But I do think that for that one moment when the guitar comes in on Voices, that it does just draw me out a little bit, and I think, oh yeah. We're definitely in 
I do find on this album the bass line is sometimes difficult to distinguish. And on certain songs, I can hear that Morris is playing a really great funky little bass riff. And I, I would say that given a remaster or a remix, I would like to see that brought forwards. And I do like that at around four minutes 20 on this song, it's like Barry seems to give up on the lyrics and just reverts to scat vocals. Yeah, it certainly ends different to how it starts, this song. It's that dynamic range. It's, it's just, it's mesmerising. given this a seven yeah i've gone with a seven on this one so now we come to the last track on side one i wish the world was run by all the little children Once again We won't hurt When we're like little children And we won't ever Feel the pain So this for me this song is the reason why Mardin was brought in to work with the Bee Gees. This is Arif Mardin in full force, demonstrating what he is best at, and that's with the gospel influence. And despite the song being written in, was it 1968? 69, yes. 1968, yeah. Mardin makes it sound so contemporary that it's not out of place for 74. Right, okay. Now, because you're obviously newer to me in the Bee Gees, and you've gone through their stuff... Do you think of this as a 69 song redone for 74? Or do you think of it as a 74 song and you were surprised that they wrote it in 69? When I first heard this album, I had no idea about the context of any of the songs. So it wasn't until a couple of years ago, I think when I was listening to, to Cucumber Castle, and then for the first time, and you then said to me, oh, by the way, they did Give a Hand, Take a Hand. Yeah. And um, you played the demo for me. And it was kind of, oh, okay, that's interesting that they that they revisited that song because they don't often revisit songs. And it's for them to pick this one song, it must have meant something to them. And also, while we're on that as well, I sometimes wonder why this song was brought back. And I was thinking, we talk about the first three tracks was Barry and Robin. And this one is Barry and Morris. Because you said earlier on the lack of Morris, I'm wondering whether this anything to do with it given Morris some writing credit. We also said earlier about what kind of songs did they present to Mardin when they first met with him. And I think that even if the Bee Gees weren't involved and it was just Stigwood getting in contact with Mardin and saying, I would like for you to work with the Bee Gees. Here is a sample of a few songs. Mm. And he might have played for them the version by P.P. Arnold and said, what do you think you could do with material like this? Then Mardin might have met up with the Bee Gees and said, oh, 
I've, you know, I've, I've heard this song. Let's go in this style. And and maybe Barry, Robin and Morris might have thought, actually, that's a good song. I'd forgotten about that. Let's redo that. group called Staple Singers did a version of it as well and I'm just wondering whether Arif was more of aware of their version and and, it, and then it was after oh I didn't realise that was a Bee Gees composition and then re, then whether he checked out that they never released it I mean and also this one I suppose listening to it do you think this is what Cucumber Castle would have sounded like with Robin? Yeah, because I think Robin's contribution to this song is fantastic. Yeah, so I'm wondering, this is what was missing. Yeah, his harmonies in the background, especially when Barry's going into full force on the chorus, and you can just hear Robin in the background really, really giving it everything. Yeah. Everybody's got to give. sure I said it multiple times during our discussion of Cucumber Castle that I couldn't quite give the songs full praise because I just felt that Robin's absence was too noticeable and it's for this exact reason it's these sort of touches that we were missing that's why the Bee Gees don't work when it's any less than the three brothers So what do you think to the live version? Great to hear them do it. I almost missed it when I was going through all the live songs from Mr. Natural. This was the last one that I discovered. I didn't spot it in the set lists that I was going through. It was only through then going through YouTube that I then saw 1974 live version of Give a Hand. And very good. When you sent me the link, I, I listened to it and I'm not really changed my opinion. I still think the they seem to sing the verse even slower. So to me, it's a bit ploddy, and I don't know whether it would have worked really well live. But again, the chorus is fine. So looking on the set list then, I think there's they covered Down the Road, Heavy Breathing, this one, and Mr. Natural, so the four songs. I get the impression that this and Mr. Natural were taken at a slower speed than the album, and Down the Road and Heavy Breathing seem faster yeah. than the record. So I don't know... Whether they thought slowing those down would give a more soulful feel and then speeding the others two would be the opposite effect. Give a Hand is quite a strange song to have in a set list because of how slow it is, even though it builds up to the rousing chorus. You couldn't, you, you'd have to be quite careful as to where you place this in the set list. Yeah. When you go to a concert and somebody and a group plays a new song, are you excited to hear a brand new song? Yeah. Yeah, I, I am. And I sometimes think, well, if, if an artist is going to produce a new song, would you rather hear them sing it a faster one or a slow one? Now, I think if it's a slow one, it would work better in isolation. But then it can be interesting to hear an artist reinterpret a song live mm. and, and give it a different flavour. Because if you want to hear the original, you've got the studio version to go back to. And I think this version of Give a Hand, Take a Hand is fairly faithful to the studio recording. 
I like this song. For me, it's the weakest song on side one. I find a bit of a standard verse, but I think it's got a rousing chorus. Yep. But I just think it deserves a better verse for me. I think it's gospel-y, but I can hear sort of country undertones to it as well. Yeah, I'm probably not so hot on it as probably you are. This is one that's a real grower for me. I think probably when I first heard Mr Natural, I could have agreed with you and said this is one of the weaker ones. But I found that in the past year, this is a song that I would go and revisit just on its own outside of the album. I would listen to this song on its own just because I really wanted to. I love it. And superb piano playing from Wessler on this one. He really captures the gospel spirit of the song. And we'll all join hands another day. as we do on every podcast, go through all the unreleased stuff. It is good to get a full studio version of, of a, of a five-year-old track, isn't it? Yeah. And I don't think it's something the Bee Gees ever did again. And what do you think of Give a Hand as a side closer? Out of all these tracks, it works best as the closing song. And I think it works well as an LP to switch it over to Dogs, and it works well on a CD as well. It just flows nicely as one piece. Whereas you get some CDs, don't the album... In, Two sides sometimes don't work quite so well. But but I think it's spot on on this. I said it with Two Years On, where you get to the end of I'm Weeping and it flows so nicely back into the opening track. I think this is another album where the last song flows so nicely back into Charade. Well, I think that's a good solid first half, to be honest with you. Yeah, I've given Give a Hand an eight. I've gone with a six on this, unfortunately. I would go as far to say that side one of Mr Natural is the best opening side of any Bee Gees album we've discussed so far. Oh, good. I think I'm with you on that one. Certainly the best of the 70s. Everybody's got to give, take a hand. It's quarter to three, and the summer of 73, so shall we go into dogs? I was... Hungry and I was cold Had a father far too old Couldn't make it to the place He'd like to be In a tree trunk in the park He was living in the dark Keeping other dogs like him For company down to a nightclub in the town try to get some bread to make another whip this is another barry and robin composition so what do you think the lyrics are on this one have you any ideas every time i hear dogs i'm always trying to work out the perspective that the song is written from and who the protagonist is i can kind of narrow it down to being about clearly a dog or the owner of a dog, and whether this owner of the dog is mm. homeless or a wanderer of the streets. And I've tried listening to the song and thinking, right, okay, so from the first lyric, I was hungry, I was cold, had a father far too old. So is this from the perspective of the owner of the dog? 
or is that the dog who's well, saying that their father is their owner? When I first heard it, I kept thinking, I'm sure this, like you said, I thought it was about a homeless person. But when you read the lyrics, I think it's on the perspective of a dog thinking about a dog family. If you look at the lyrics, I was hungry and I was cold, had a father far too old. So was he thinking of an older dog? Couldn't make it to the place he'd like to be in a tree trunk in the park. So could this dog have lived in the park? And he was living in the dark, keeping other dogs like him for company. So he was friendly with other dogs. Try and get some bread, you know, food. Back to the park I go. Then it goes into dig him out the snow. You know, he lived a thousand years day to day. So, yeah, I don't know. Well, the days get shorter, the nights get longer, etc., etc. So the song is from the perspective of a dog. Yeah. The father that the dog is referring to is its owner, who I see as being a homeless person, because it's this person who is living in a tree trunk in the park. They don't have a house to live in. And it's the dog that has to go out and get the food for this person. And it's the dog that then has to take this person out of the snow because they've got nowhere else to be. Yeah, so It could be. This goes back to songs from Tin Can where you, you could read things into them. And I would say this is the really only story song on this album. Um, possibly or Mr. Mr. Natural. Mr. Natural. Yeah, I think the two go hand in hand yeah. really well. If this is about a dog talking about its master, maybe the master is... Mr. Natural. And then going with what you said about the lyrics, by the time you get to the end of the song and it says, will I be the one you run to in the end and all my dogs need a friend? So maybe the perspective has changed and it's the owner of the dog saying, will I still be the one that you care about? Yeah. Will the dog still run towards me to need a friend? It's interesting. I'm now more confused than when I started. I thought I cracked it (laughs) when I first started it. So going on this song as well, you look on the internet And a lot of people seem to think this is very similar to some things Elton John would do. Yeah. And I've listened to it a few times and initially I didn't get it. But I think where they're coming from is the sound of the piano. I think if you give it a listen, you can hear an Elton John sound coming from the from the piano more than the tune. Would you think that was intentional? No, it could have been in the back of the mind, a little bit of influence. Yeah. I mean, you listen to all artists. Um, they say oh, they like listening to contemporary sounds, not necessarily to copy, but to get an idea of what they want. And some things in the subconscious must must stick there. But Elton John was, was smoking hot in 73 and 74, so it could have leaked in there somewhere. I guess the cops won again. As far as story songs go that the Bee Gees have written, although this story is quite unusual, um, I think this is one of the best. It's so good. Maybe my favourite lyric of uh, the whole album is, it was quarter to three in the summer of 73. But I think this is a fabulous track. I think um, it's a great way to open side two. Previous episodes when we discussed Kicking the Head. I think this, it's a, this is a lost 70s single like Losers and Lovers. I don't know about you, Chris, but I think this one is is one where you can really hear the departure from Bee Gees 73 leading up to main course. Yeah. Particularly the chorus. This 
could quite easily replace all this making love. Both, I think, are quite similar. So I, I wouldn't put this out of place at all on main course. Because I think at around one minute, is it one minute? You can hear the change from the old Bee Gees into what we class as the new sound Bee Gees. Yeah. Especially with, with, that, with the chorus and the, and the days get longer and the nights get shorter. Barry sort of goes into that new type of vocal range that we've not really heard previously. Looking on the internet, this is this is one of the songs that people tend to go for on this album. Well, I think it's so unique to this album. And if we're saying that Side One starts slowly and has quite a few mid-tempo songs, a few ballads, charade, throw a penny, give a hand, take a hand, Dogs is certainly the opposite of that. Do you think this would have made a better second choice as a single? After if Mr Natural, then you've gone on to this. Yes, I mean, it could have been a first choice for single. In hindsight, it could have been. But I think Mr. Natural is, is a slightly more contemporary sound from what we'd heard previously. But you've still got dominant Robin's vocals on it. This one is mainly Barry's, but then you get the new sound as well. So I think it would have been nice to have, to have heard this one. And then you probably could have had Charade or Throw a Penny as your third single. Yeah. Or even missed them two out and gone on to something like Heavy Breathing. I agree. I think to have had a... A statement of this is the new Bee Gees, then maybe it would have been best to have completely abandoned having ballads as singles. Yeah, exactly. This one was recorded on the 18th of December, and I would guess by one of the lyrics in the song that it was perhaps composed in the summer of 73. Yeah. Looking at these songs, and we'll go through the recording dates and everything, but so much of this stuff was written in 73, and it is so, so, as you said, it's so, so different to Tin Can. And so different to the four songs that they composed in the January of 73. I know. Mr Kissinger. So that's what makes it interesting. I wonder what that July session song that we mentioned on that podcast sounds like. Because it said they went back in as a single. Could that have been an up-tempo song? They liked it, but didn't want to take it any further. So then it, it, when they come into these, the songs they did record in 73 were probably really, well, up-tempo ones, weren't they? I wonder if Martin never heard it. You know, they said, well, this is the last thing we've done. See what you think to this. But probably if he had it done, they would have attempted to do it. Unless it might, we might be barking at the wrong tree and it might be <laughs> another ballad. But I will say that with the lyrical content of this song and the subject matter... I do think this would have been the perfect moment on the album to have given the lead to Morris. Yeah, that would be interesting. Just to have him vocally present would have made it feel like he was a, just a bit more involved in the yeah, songwriting well, and production. I think this was too much of Barry's baby, this song. And I don't think he wanted to let go of this one. I mean, I just think his vocals are phenomenal on that bit where he goes when the days get shorter, that part. And at the end when he says, need a friend. That's it, yeah. I mean, it's got good tempo change, sort of predated Nights on Broadway as well, so... But saying all of this, would you at the time have picked this as a single? Well, again, with what's in the charts, it couldn't have done it any worse than what they put out. There's about four songs on here that I think are great, and this, this is one of them. Yeah. And do you think it's a right choice for opening side two? Definitely. 
I do like this album with this track sequencing. I think it works well. Though I think you could have swapped this with Mr. Natural. Either place on the album, Mr. Natural would have been just as good as an opener for side two. Well, I, I think on this album, the first three tracks on side one and the first three tracks on side two are the best six. So what are your scores for dogs? I'd written down seven, but after you praised it so highly just then, it, it's making me reevaluate. But then I don't know if I could go for an eight. So I'll, I'll stay with a seven for now, but it, this could rise. Yeah, no, I've gone for a nine on this. Before doing the research and everything, I had this down as an eight. It's brilliant. So yeah, I'm going with a nine on this. This then brings us on to the next song, and this was recorded on the 8th of January 74 at Command Studios in London, presumably at the same time as their revisit of It Doesn't Matter Much To Me. What do you make of Mr Natural? Love it. I think it's amazing. This is the standout hit single from the album. It should have been a hit single. This is one of those songs that I think, and I could what we just said about dogs, if Mr Natural the song had have been put on Main Course or Children of the World... It would have done so much better. It just got lost on this album. That's what I go back to what I said earlier about there's so much you can pick from from this album that, that would have fitted as let, let's stick this out as an extra track or let's just promote this one after Saturday Night Fever. It just, it's fine, isn't it? Yeah. This is a Barry and Robin composition, but I always think of it a bit more as Robin. Yeah. Whereas we thought Dogs was more Barry. This one is... Definitely, I know that Robin's singing it, so that kind of puts me in that mindset a bit more. With the subject matter, I cry. It's the self-reflection. He's alone. Yeah, <laughs> it's Robin. It's Robin, yeah. You would actually think of it as a Robin song, I think, because obviously he opens the song up, then you get followed by Barry, and then I think you get a fantastic chorus yeah. on this one. Yeah. On this one, on the Come On Baby bit, It's sort of a falsetto. Is that Morris, do you think? No, I think that's Barry. You think it's Barry? I keep listening to it. I think, well, is it Barry or is it... I know he sometimes would do the high part. So I'm wondering sometimes, is that Morris? I wonder why this wasn't a hit. In the way that, say, Jive Talking was. Do you think it's got a lot to do with the promotion? I mean, I obviously I don't know at the time what the promotional kick was in this. Because it did so well in Australia. We hear the stories about Jive Talking where, because the Bee Gees name had a bit of a poor reputation to it by 74, 75, what they did for Jive Talking was when they were sending the 
acetate. Oh, like a plain white promo, promo acetate. Yeah, yeah, it was just a plain label so that disc jockeys wouldn't know who it was. They would just put the record on and it was so good. But I suppose with Mr. Naturally, you couldn't do that because soon as the, the, the opening words and you know it's Robin. Yeah, exactly. You know, they're not going over a, a train bridge on this song. <laughs> yeah, and it's obviously Jive Talk has got that rhythmic start to it as well. So. Even though, controversially, I prefer this song to Jive Talking. Jive Talking suffers with overkill. But this one, I just don't know why it wasn't a hit. And I suppose on the fact that it was it was a big hit in, in Australia, they went and toured over there. Now, have you listened to the live one on this one? Because I think they see it slightly slower. When it's performed live at that slower tempo, it gives it a bit more of a soulful flavour, which I really like. Yeah. I mean, I I like it, and I can see where they were going on it, but I, I'm so used to the studio version. When I hear it, I sometimes think, oh, it needs pepping up a bit. Yeah. Because it seems like they've, they've slowed it down to sort of songs that they were singing. And obviously we're looking now at something new, so I think they could have been a bit more rhythmic behind him. But yeah, I mean, it's a good version. Mr. Natural was quite rightly chosen as the first single from the album, released in March, and it was backed with It Doesn't Matter Much To Me. I found a review from Cashbox from the 16th of February, and they said, This incredibly delicious track by the chart veterans is their best ever. Spiced with a dash of rock, it is a totally unique excursion for them. One listen will hook even the most critical of pop fanatics. No way this is going to stay out of the top five. In fact, it will probably be carried straight to the top, possibly due to the knockout bass line running through the entire track. Do not miss this one from the new Bee Gees. So they were fully aware that obviously they weren't hit with a ballad. Even though then ballads prior to that were getting good reviews. And again, we got another single with, with an excellent review. But from the 30th of March 1974 issue of Melody Maker, they are really not so keen on this song. And they say, voila. The Bee Gees discover fuzz guitar and the world's a safer place. Someone's probably told these boys to toughen up and quit weeding on in such a godforsaken fashion. But, alack, Robin Gibb, who handles most of the lead vocals, is still the same old hoof-saw sheep pining on the remote hilltops for the girl who left him behind. I've no powerful argument with the melody, or even the strictness of the arrangement, but it's not the kind of warbling dirge I'd want my kids listening to. A bit bitter and twisted, isn't it? That's a personal attack on... His... Obviously, he doesn't like his singing style. And it goes back to the beginning of the Bee Gees' work, where Robin's voice has always been 50-50 as to yeah. whether people like it or don't like it. And, you know, we, we obviously are biased and love it. Have you heard the isolated vocal version of this song? I'm glad you said that, because I have, and I think it's stunning. I mean, you, you can really hear 
Robin's voice. Somebody's actually kindly written what they think when you when you listen to it. What they say is Robin sings lead on the first verse and the high harmonies are provided by Morris. And Barry sings the second verse and the harmonies are by Robin and then Robin and Morris together. When Robin sings Well I Try 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 part, his voice is doubled each time all the way through to the fade. Well I try, 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 try. It's the nature of the whole thing. This is the sort of stuff that you miss when the whole arrangement is there. When there's all of the instrumentation, things like Morris's harmonies get lost. And actually, I think if you were to strip away the the instrumentation from every song on this album, and probably all of the songs from 74 to 79, you would hear Morris on a lot of songs that you don't quite realise that he's involved with. I mean, if they ever released a, which we go on numerous times, go and release a deluxe edition, yeah. it'd be quite nice to hear the vocal only on quite a lot of these songs. Yeah, because that's what you get on quite a few of the Beatles, John Lennon box sets, is, is you get the versions where it's instrument only or vocals only. They show the vocals, then gradually build up instruments and the yeah. backing till you which get Which I, I love. Yeah, because you can hear the songs from... Evolving, can't you? Evolving from rough demo to first studio take to vocals only, instrument only, and then you've got the remaster of the final product. Yeah, but if anybody's not heard the, the full version, definitely go onto YouTube and give it a listen. Yeah, I'll put the link in the description of this episode so you can find it. When I walk in the rain, you won't know that I'm crying. Smile on my face and I'm In Australia, it got to number 11. Uh, Zimbabwe, number four. Netherlands, it got 65. And then unfortunately, it's a bit of a downhill then. You've got, um, well, it's got United States cash box with 87. Canada, 90. The US Billboard, 93. And USRW, 94. I'm thinking that Mr. Natural was needed as a stepping stone album because if they'd have not released this and gone straight from Tin Can to Main Course, Main Course could have suffered the same fate as Mr. Yeah. Natural. They just needed well, an that would album. have been the transition album, wouldn't it? Yeah, no. they, they would have just needed an album to put out to, to to bridge the gap from the sounds of Tin Can to the new sounds of Main Course. But it's quite interesting, actually, isn't it, that the album in Australia fared better than Main Course because it got to number twenty. In there, and I think main course was because was it twenty nine? Yep, amazing, isn't it? Looking at that, I think the Bee Gees must have had a a hit single somewhere around the world with every album they've released. It was Hong Kong, saw a new morning. Yeah. So yeah, there's always something somewhere. Yeah, and wouldn't I be someone got to number one in Hong Kong as well? Yeah. So really big over there. I wonder what they thought of Mr. Natural. I don't. I haven't checked actually where that come. Whether it was too much of a change and they like classic Bee Gees. And even Germany as well, despite how popular they were in the late 60s and beginning of the 70s, we could see a bit of a dip as we were getting to To Whom It May Concern, Life in a Tin Can, Mm. with their performance in Germany. I just think they were just seen as a, a 60s act. But no, I really rate this song.
What score are you giving to Mr. Natural? Again, listening to the studio and the live one, I've gone with a nine on this as well. See, again, I put eight, but I could easily nudge to a nine. I'll stay with an eight. So with that then, shall we go into the third track? Yep. And this one's called Lost in Your Love. Lost in Your Love was recorded on the 28th of January at Atlantic Studios in New York on the same day as Give a Hand, and this is the only Barry composition, solo Barry, on the album. And it sounds like it. And it is his best vocal on the album. Fantastic. Gorgeous ballad. Again, this is in my top four of the album. Without sounding like I'm repeating myself, but like Sherrard and the others, this so deserves a wider audience. You mentioned it at the beginning of the podcast where we were talking about work that Arif Martin did or done. And you, we mentioned Abandoned Luncheonette by Hall & Oates. Yep. Now, this, I can imagine Daryl Hall ripping to shreds with his vocal on this one. It's got, it reminds me a little bit of Every Time You Go Away, his version of that, not the Paul Young version, but his, at the end of it, when he, he really gets into the song. She's gone. Yeah, she's gone. It's in that sort of category. I said it with the past few albums where there's always a song that's a precursor to what's to come. And I think that Lost in Your Love really moulds the template for the type of Barry Gibbs song that we'll be getting. Lost in Your Love would not be out of place on Spirits. It would not be out of place on Living Eyes. And it doesn't sound dated. No. That's one good thing about Harris production. It does not sound, you know, it's, it's still contemporary. And I think with all of these ballads that we're coming on to on side two, they all sound... You know, they could have been recorded yesterday. I know it's a cliche to say, but it, as you as you say, this, this is timeless music. Yeah, and no, I think we're now getting into the blue-eyed soul territory as well. Which just suits Barry so well. But would you describe this as a Barry pretty ballad, or would you think it's something a bit more mature? It's him going into the territory that he would really explore on an album like Guilty. That's a good point. That is a very good point, actually. Well, this would, thinking about it, would sound really good with Barbara doing it.
think that the closing coda of this song is fantastic. And I can picture when I'm listening to the song how closely Barry is working with Mardin to achieve these sounds. Yeah, this is this is just wonderful stuff. Definitely one of the highlights, isn't it? Easily. I've given it a nine. I've gone with a nine as well. So the next track we have is track number four, and that's I Can't Let You Go. And this is the second of the three BRM compositions on the album. It's undated, but recorded around November of 73. Now, looking on the internet, a lot of people's opinions of this song is one of their favourites, and a lot of people see this or view this as, as a lead into main course. This is a really, really good song, but I think it, where it's placed on the album is probably the only issue that I have with the sequencing. I think side two is a little bit weighed heavy with ballads. But I think at around three minutes, if you listen to the sound of the guitar, I'm sure that sound is, I mean, I'm not very musical, so I don't know this, but I think it's used on Living Eyes. Robin's got fantastic harmonies, especially towards the end. Mm. Yeah, really tight double tracking from Robin and potentially also Morris. I think that Robin's voice is, is kind of barely detectable, but it's strengthening Barry's lead vocal. And when you notice it, you can you, you do notice it, but it is layered so cleverly that it, it, it just it boosts Barry's vocal without ever taking away from it. And I think that Morris is providing such a good bass part to this song, but it's really lost in the mix. Yeah. Listening to these tracks on Mr. Natural, I honestly believe that Arif really loved the sound of Barry and Robin's voice. And then he loved the sound of the three brothers harmonising. And particularly, I think Morris was used quite well with harmonising on this. And Can't Let You Go is a great example of that. Throughout this episode, we've spoken quite a lot about, do you think this was the right choice of single? Could this have been a single? And with Can't Let You Go, although I think it gets a little bit buried on this album and on side two, I do think that it would have been such a statement of intent to have had this as the first single because I think it's got everything about it is perfect for the radio airwaves. It's a perfect pop song, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. This song, we've said it sounds similar to Living Eyes. This song, I think, is very ahead of its time in terms of its sound, that it would have been such a statement of intent as a first single and so different to Saw a New Morning. Yeah. That I think this would have disproved everything because there's nothing quirky about this song in the same way as say Mr Natural or Dogs um it's not a ballad like Charade it's just it's a really really great song and this would have been great live as well 
preparing for this podcast and listening to this, like you probably said on dogs and one or two others, oh, I think my opinion's changed on it. I've improved it. This, for me, is one of the songs that has really grown on me. And that's what all great pop songs do, isn't it? Yeah. But do you not think that that's a bit more of a indication of how good this album is? Because if I Can't Let You Go had have been on Life in a Tin Can, you would have praised it as being the standout. You're quite right, actually. We're sort of sport for choice um, on this album because it's just full of riches. And it, I, I think every time you listen to the album, you find something to talk about or something new. Yeah. Whereas I can't say about all albums, but, but with this one... Scoring-wise on this, Chris, I've dropped down a little bit and I've gone to a seven. Yep, seven for me. Which proves how good the album is. And then on to the penultimate song, Heavy Breathing. change isn't it and a change that is exactly what's needed at this point on the album we've had two ballads we're about to have another ballad to close off the album so in the middle of that put this up tempo kind of rocker now i've got this down as sort of a funky rhythm and blues vibe on this one i i get the impression it's it's from a jam session yeah but it is credited to barry and robin and I would have thought with the song like this that Morris would have had a bit more of an input. Oh, that's true. And again, like the song Mr. Natural, I think that if this had have been put on to Children of the World main course, then again, it really would have been far more popular and it would have remained in their set list, I think, through till 2001. There's one thing on this that really stands out is the fantastic brass on this. I mean, it's something we don't really... On this album, have we heard of brass on any other Bee Gees album? I don't think... So. Not, not as, so much in the mix as this. <laughs> And I'll say it again, I've said it quite a few times before, would have been a good opportunity for a Morris lead. Yeah. In fact, this might probably work out well. But I mean, but we're here, you get Barry's, you go back to the concert version. With the concert version, you get Barry's sort of strong, full rock voice. I'm wondering whether, on the podcast we did for Kick, we played a couple of tracks. We, was he singing Hey Jude? Yeah. And I'm wondering whether that was in his head after singing that and we said it's great to hear Barry on this rock voice. And then we get, in 73, what do they do on the first 
recording song, they, re- they do heavy breathing. Mm. And I know that you're not so keen on some of these songs that I'm going to mention, but I can hear that from heavy breathing, that's them from that. We then start to get more songs kind of in that style, Boogie Child, uh, Living Together. Yeah, I like Living Together, but uh, not so much the other one. This one I find quite difficult to, to score because... Despite all that, do I prefer it to I Can't Let You Go and I've given it a seven? I'm not so sure. Well, I've given it a seven. So I've gone with a seven. Given that we started the album with the soft, gentle charade, Had a Lot of Love Last Night suitably closes off the album and rounds off what we've been having over the past 11 tracks really nicely. I think this is a very gentle, especially after the highs of heavy breathing in terms of the amount of energy that was going on in that song. It's nice just to have this to kind of wind down and and it just leads us out nicely and, and kind of just sets us off almost like a boat on the ocean as we drift off towards the sounds of main course. I think this is sort of a lovely, sort of dreamlike end to the album. It's doing what the Bee Gees do best, fantastic harmonies, very choir-like, angelic. Do you think it's like a, it's a pity that they, uh, wonder what this would have sounded like had they had heard I'm Not In Love the following year, how this would have sounded? Because it's got that sort of quality to it, hasn't yeah. it? Yeah. Now, what do you think to this? I think this from here on right up to mr uh, to living eyes the Bee Gees ended an album sort of stripped back i mean you've got baby I should turn away nice easy flowing ballad then you've got ha ha children of the world again a lot of vocal yeah then you've got is it until on spirits yeah spirits and then you've got be who you are on living eyes I always think the last song on an album is is almost the most important, just as much as the leading song on side one. In a way, to, to leave with songs like this that are just sort of a bit more gentle and a bit more relaxed, it leaves you wanting more. I said it earlier on the way that I had a lot of love last night. When you're listening to it on CD or streaming, it, it sequences really nicely back into the opening tinkling of charade. Yeah. We're When I first heard Mr. Natural four, four and a half years ago, I always had the impression that it dropped in quality towards the end of the album with these past four songs. But upon revisiting, the end of side two has really improved for me, and I don't really see the album dropping in quality at any point. I do still think that the strongest part is probably charade through a penny down the road voices but these songs on side two they've aged like fine wine and we've spoken about the timeless quality and i think that's completely evident on had a lot of love last night 
Yeah, it's just classic Bee Gees. And the way that the song has that unexpected ending to it, it sort of slows down to a halt, kind of midway through the chorus. And it's a rather understated ending. But I think this is such a heartfelt arrangement from Mardin, with haunting harmonies from Barry and Robin. And I think that Mr. Natural is one of the strongest albums for demonstrating the power of Barry and Robin's co-compositions. Yeah, but they are good, at the two of them, at writing this sort of stuff. As, as you mentioned earlier on regarding Barbara Streisand album, Guilty. You know, they, they have quite similar veins, some of them songs. Yeah, going with what you said with Barry and Robin composing most of these songs, I get the impression with this album, as opposed to quite a few of the other ones, where I sometimes think Barry was competing against his brother and vice versa. Odessa. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas I think with this one, as you say, they're working in harmony. By this point, they both understand each other's strengths as writers yeah. and as performers, that now they've they've found common ground and they're just producing these incredible songs and continue to improve throughout the 70s, 80s, 90s. We both throw in praises at this album. If you had to meet a stranger who'd never heard of the Bee Gees and you had to give them, say, two or three albums, would you put this as one of them? It would either be this or main course. I wouldn't give them both because they're too similar. If you give them, give them three albums, would you probably go with BG? Would you go with BG's first? Definitely. I would then go with with this album. Yeah. And then I would probably go for ESP one. Yeah, I'll go for one because I'm probably a bit biased, but I would probably go for one. It would either be Mr. Natural or main course. I might go for main course and sizes and everything. Oh, that's a good one. I forgot about the size and everything, but um, I'll, I'll stick with one. Four, it might be size and everything. <laughs> yeah. Mr. Natural is such a good demonstration of everything that the Bee Gees are. Versatile songwriting, versatile voices, arrangements. Yeah. yeah. What's not to like? I don't know. Ask the record buying public in 74. <laughs> App- apparently, <laughs> apparently everything. <laughs> Now, I'm coming to a similar pattern here as uh, the previous two songs, but I've gone with a seven again. No, I've closed off with an eight. I am tempted with an eight, actually. Oh, what the hell? I'm going to go with an eight. Okay, brilliant. This then leaves us with one extra song, which was the B-side to Mr. Natural. And we did discuss it during our episode on A Kick in the Head, but this is a slightly different version of It Doesn't Matter Much to Me. Hello, Angel, do you know? Me, I'm your man Would that be hard above your head To understand I've been looking forward to this day For so, so long Could loving you so, so wrong It doesn't matter much to me My assumption of It Doesn't Matter Much to Me was that there was the original version from 72-73 that appeared on A Kick in the Head, and then a reworked version that appeared as the B-side to Mr. Natural. But I didn't realise that there's also a third version. No, I didn't. And I kind of assumed that with the version that appears on the Mr. Natural single, all they might have done is 
kept the same vocal and backing and rhythm, but maybe just have speeded it up and then for Martin to add a few more of his own embellishments to it. But listening to it, it does actually sound like a re- a completely new vocal from Barry. Yeah, he's, he's, saying, he's saying closer mic'd as well. Yeah, and it's in a different key as well. So you think, do you think they sped up the original back in then and then he's added just a new vocal to it? Yeah, possibly. And that's why it changed key. Yeah. yeah. This is a, a really strange one because it, even though it's reworked with Mardin, the song doesn't really suit the tone of the album. Could it have been another song from A Kick in the Head that would have been a more appropriate B-side? Yeah. And it's quite unusual, again, that for this album... And for the associated tracks, they've they've gone from they've gone they've picked a sixty nine track, and they've also picked a seventy two track. I recently brought the vinyl version, Chris, of ESP the album. I saw it in a shop, and and it was a good price. I thought I'll buy it because at the time I only brought CDs because that's when CDs were new. And I was actually listening to the track ESP, and if you listen to the ending of that song, Robin sort of goes off. On one not dissimilar to the end of this song, and I hadn't really noticed it before. I was, I was just listening to the to the album. I thought, oh, this ending reminds me a little bit of it. Doesn't matter much to me. And I don't know if you ever thought on this one as well, but Robin sings this sort of in a quite an aggressive way. And I just wonder whether he wrote the lyrics and it meant something to him, because in contrast, you get the soft, Barry sings it really soft, the baby, baby part. I don't know whether this was more a Robin song that he felt. And going with what you said about the coda at the end, sounding like ESP, listening to that, and I agree with you, and I do wonder whether when they're recording a song, whether they know from the beginning that that's how they're going to end the song or whether it's if they're so into the music that they feel like they just have to, yeah. I don't know, let, let the music guide them. Yeah. Or do you think sometimes they do with it in a few of the songs, but it gets faded out before the end? Oh, yeah. But that's the one thing that I do love about the Bee Gees is that they know how to end a song. Fade outs are fine, but you can get some albums by artists where every song fades out and it can come across a little bit lazy and repetitive whereas with the Bee Gees if they do fade out it tends to be with that big coda and and they'll do it at moments like the end of side one with give a hand and I like that a lot and then when you get to hear that song live it's always fascinating because you can't fade out when you're performing live so you have to give it an ending yeah I agree with you we'd like to feature our new single now we hope you like that it's called Mr Natural After concluding their tour of Japan on the 16th of September 1973, the Bee Gees went on to tour the US and Canada. They finished their US tour in March 1974, and their 25th of March performance at Nashville is the first instance I could find of Mr. Natural material appearing appearing in the set list, with the song Mr. Natural opening the set and Heavy Breathing as the encore. I couldn't find set lists for some of the earlier US shows, so potentially... They might have debuted Mr. Natural songs before then, Mm. but this is the first recorded instance I could find. Yeah, it seems strange because on the 4th of March in New York, the the recorded set list is all songs from Life in a Tin Can. So it it could have actually been debuted a bit earlier. 
so after the US tour, they returned to UK and by all accounts, they, they were on a real high, um, thought the concerts went really well. And they, then they were signed up to do um, some, what they call the cabaret circuit in the northern of, in north of England. Looking at what I've read and stuff, it was something that they were forced to do. It, the money was lucrative. They're quite strange places, actually. Very much of the time, I think people sort of sat around like round tables and they had a meal. And then obviously being a cabaret, then the group would go on. Robin explained later that he really hated nightclubs because of his experience when they was in Australia. He didn't like the thought of seeing beer-swelling men talking and ignoring what they were doing while they were on stage. Mm. A group would be on and there'd be people sitting at a table eating fish and chips or, or whatever sort of a bar meal. But because of the fee, it, it was what they, they did. On April 28, 1974, they played their first show. I think there was booked there in Leeds to play for a week. Unfortunately, there's no decent recording from this tour, but I'd love, if I had a time machine, I'd love to go back to one of those. I'd love to have been there. Yeah. Eaten as well. What could be better? Except I don't like fish. (laughs) So they're swelling in the corner. Gives me a haddock. (laughs) It would be such a distraction to be trying to sing and play and people are chatting eating their meals, you're not getting their full attention. You're sort of, your background music. Must be terrible. It's, I mean, Robin continues, we thought we've come to this and we just walked out of that club and we never looked back. He then says, this is never ever going to happen to this group again. We knew we've got so much more to offer. Barry remembered thinking, this is it. We've hit rock bottom. We are has-beens. We have to get back up there. It has to happen again. We'd lost the will to write great songs. I don't really agree with that. We had the talent, but the inspiration had gone. We decided right there and then we were going to do it. And honestly, it took us five years to get to know one another again. Those five years were hell. There is nothing worse on earth than being in the pop wilderness. It's like being on exile. And the other artists treat you like crap. They say, hey, I didn't know you were still together. It's then you realise they haven't thought of you for years. It's all ego. The whole business is ego. Robin then says we were in a real dead zone. No one wanted to hear us. The record companies weren't interested. It was a real damn period. A voice in the wilderness. Cue song. So they started at Batsley Variety Club on the 2nd of May and continued the Northern England circuit until the 25th of May with the last date at the Fiesta Club in Sheffield. And in August, the Bee Gees returned to the US and started their Mr. Natural tour in Chicago on the 15th of August. And I've looked at the average set list for this tour. So it starts with Spicks and Specks and then Road to Alaska, Mr. Natural and The Sun Will Shine, I Can't See Nobody, Run to Me, Lay It On Me, Morning of My Life, Alexander's Ragtime Band, To Love Somebody, I Started a Joke, How Can You Mend a Broken Heart, Words, I've Got to Get a Message to You, Massachusetts, Lonely Days. Strong set list. Almost a song from every album. Mm, very enough. strong. I don't quite know Alexander Ragtime was needed to be brought in, but whether it's sort of a comical part. And then in September and October, they then toured New Zealand and Australia before moving on to East Asia and then Alaska across October and November. 
I found an article from Cashbox from the 19th of October 74 reporting on the Bee Gees' performance in Australia. They said, The Bee Gees have broken all previous records for the number of dates played with sold out at houses each stop along the way. No other entertainer or group has played to the numbers reached by the Bee Gees on this Australian tour. The three Gibb brothers, working with a 20-piece backup orchestra, gave 21 concerts nationwide. This adds up to the largest amount of concerts ever given in Australia on one tour, and each was a resounding success with both critics and audiences. That's amazing, isn't it? I didn't realise they were still taking the orchestra with them. No, I didn't, actually. I was looking at it, and it's quite interesting that you say they're, they're all sold out, that, and I think the festival hall in Australia is probably around about five, five and a half thousand, something like that. Yep. In the UK, a place like Batley's in Leeds, you mentioned, is 1,800 people. Well, that's nothing, is it? The smaller the venue, the better, I think. On a personal view, I love the small venues. But thinking back to the late 60s when they were doing these great concerts, half an hour concerts at the Albert Hall, you know, to then be five years later, to then be at Batley Variety Club in northern England, you can see it was a downgrade. But it's it's quite strange, really, because it's a funny time, early 70s, because I was looking and... In 1973, Paul McCartney's Wings toured and they were only playing into theatres in like Bristol and stuff. They did De Montfort Hall in Leicester. So they're, they're not huge venues in compared to today's standards. In the Bee Gees' ultimate biography, they interview a gentleman by the name of Frederick Tanner who'd, been, who'd seen the Bee Gees in 1968 and he was quite a good eyewitness because he said, I was horrified to find the club virtually empty with no more than 30 or 40 fans dotted around. When they came out to sing, their hearts must have sank, yet they performed as if the club was packed, giving the few of us there a performance to remember. They were superb and totally professional throughout. Another fan, who was at the same table as me, had spent up on the basket fish and chip dinner, so I agreed to give him a lift back into town. As we left, we saw Robin at the end of the alley at the back of the club looking really dejected. I've also found a review for that show and it says Robin's in his bright blue jacket as definitely the one to watch under the spotlight. Although pointing out that his ragdoll dancing made him the most unlikely pop star ever. So again, we go back to what we was talking about in the Australian years about them doing their comedy acts. Again, it was something that they still felt they had to do. Yeah. I couldn't find any definite set lists for their Northern England tour, but I'm pretty sure from some of the clips that I've heard, this is around the time that they do start to experiment with the set list. I believe that they were doing things like Saved by the Bell, segueing into Odessa, which Odessa had never been performed live before. So they, they were testing out different things. But it seems like a bit of serendipity that looking at the album artwork for Mr. Natural, you've got the guy sat at the bar and the sign underneath him reading every Sunday brunch. So yeah. the, the setting of being in a bar with food being served to then the Bee Gees performing during the time of Mr. Natural and there in these nightclubs where food is being served. And and with the neon signing at the front of the album cover, Bee Gees, Mr. Natural, it kind of gives the album a bit of a, a nightclub feel. And that late night feel, if we're looking at Mr. Natural as a precursor of things to come, you could say that this is the Bee Gees warming up for their big night on Broadway. Oh, that's true. Yeah. Bee 
Having gone through the Mr. Natural album, this now brings us to the end of part one. In part two, we're joined by Tim Roxburgh. I'm very excited to share this discussion that we had with him all about this album and just about the Bee Gees career. Yeah, we had a pleasurable hour or so with him, didn't we? Really, really good stuff. And as usual, we'll also be going through critical reception and also the thoughts of listeners of what they've sent into us. Yeah, looking forward to that. So until then, thank you for listening. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Words, the Bee Gees podcast, presented by Stuart and Cristiano Jepson. Follow the podcast on Facebook and Instagram at Words Bee Gees Podcast and on Twitter at Words Bee Gees Pod. Or, if you'd like to get in touch, you can email us at wordsbeegeespodcast at gmail.com. Oh, wow.